The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Our guest today is Torigi Ciccone, author, painter, engineer, and science enthusiast. Torigi is the author of the 2020 book, A Hitchhiker's Guide Through Climate Change. The book is the best possible source for parents and grandparents to explain climate change reality to their children. Dorici, who I'll call Terry with his permission, was born in Italy, but immigrated to the United States in 1956 and is now based in Sarasota, Florida. He's the founder president of Info Alliance LLC, a firm of industry experts specializing in advancing high-tech startup companies. Terry has a BS in engineering and an MS from Northeastern University. He is a graduate from General Electric's three-year manufacturing management and technical marketing programs. And he was a recipient of many managerial MVP and innovation awards. Terry has over 40 years experience in gas turbine technologies for aviation, power generation, oil and gas industry and ship propulsion. And personally, I find that very interesting since I was an aero propulsion engineer with a focus on aerogas turbines with the Canadian forces at the start of my career. Terry also worked in Belfort, France for the co-design build and test of the world's first ever 100 megawatt gas turbine. He headed up the co-design build test prototype manufacture of a three megawatt gas turbine in Florence, Italy, and was also responsible for Italian production deliveries of turbines and compressors for the first ever Russia-Europe gas pipeline. So welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Terry, I want to jump in uh, and have you answer a couple questions that I think will fascinate our audience. I know that you actually worked with the late, great, iconic Jack Welch. And I thought a a minute or so telling about uh, what kind of a guy he was and how you actually worked with him. And then we can go on and... (laughs) ask you uh, how his predecessor, Jeffrey Immelt, uh, did at General Electric. There could not be two different people in the world. Uh, Actually, I was a protege of a competitor of Jack Welch. I found myself in in a delicate situation because of that relationship I had with uh, his competitor. But He gave me a second chance to redeem myself, and that was a turning point in my life. I think Jack Welch is probably the single greatest industry leader in the planet. He both forced and inspired people to their best to take calculated risks when the reward 
look like they would pay out handsomely. So I consider him a great mentor. I just admire him. By contrast, Jeff Immelt was the perfect marketing salesman. Always a smile, always happy to get along with everybody, but really never measured up to Jack's ability to meet goals, to meet targets, to inspire people to do their best. So a real contrast in people, personalities, and uh, effectiveness. Just so the audience understands who these gentlemen are, they were the presidents of GE, is that right? Yes, president, chief executive officer, chairman of the board, they held all the reins. Mm -hmm. And of course, Jeffrey email really began a downward spiral for uh, General, General Electric, which it never totally recovered from. I mean, it's okay, but uh, uh, he was not able to keep the company where uh, Jack Welch was. I'd like to explain to the audience uh, how Terry and I uh, met some years ago. Terry was uh, working on a book that uh, was published uh, a year ago, which Tom uh, mentioned, a uh, hitchhiker's journey through climate change. And he came to me and asked for assistance when uh, his book was 187 pages long. And uh, I gave him a good deal of assistance. And when the book was finished and published uh, a year ago, April, it was exactly 380 pages long. So we made a, a much bigger book. And uh, as uh, Tom indicated, it's absolutely the best book for parents and, and grandparents to uh, understand the simplicity of climate change and uh, teach it to their children and grandparents, which uh, certainly has not been done uh, within our school system where uh, the fraud of man-caused climate change has just continued unending for the last uh, 20 years. In this program, we want to focus on some recent work that uh, Terry has done with regard to uh, sea level rise. And uh, President Biden has said some interesting things about it. And uh, Tom wanted to open with a question about uh, Biden's attitudes. President Joe Biden, he expects us to believe that emissions of CO2, carbon dioxide, are warming the planet and melting ice so much that it will result in oceans rising to dangerous levels. And I wanted to read a quote from a CNN town hall that he was in when he was campaigning to be Democratic president. And we see this, this kind of statement where he's promoting the sea level rise scare quite a lot. He said, my state is three feet above sea level. And guess what? We know what's going to happen if we don't make significant change. So how would you respond to that, Terry? Well, I think we have to cut Joe some slack right up right up front. He is a politician and he speaks the language of politicians. I'm an engineer, a scientist. I speak the science of climate change. I speak the data of climate change. I, I speak about the economic impact of some of the silly things that are proposed by the politicians. I speak about the waste of Trillions of dollars. Let's face it, we're in the trillion dollar waste business already spent on these uh, 
wind turbines and solar panels that effectively provide close to zero net electrical power to the grid. They're like they're the mannequins in the windows front that are used to sell the stores. So we speak very different languages. The sea level situation is one of the most uh, dramatic. Uh, all of the movies that the uh, opposition have made have photoshopped uh, pictures of uh, water rising in Manhattan up to the Manhattan up to the 10th floor of uh, buildings. They've uh, talked about islands in the Pacific uh, going underwater. And they have actually been uh, lying 100 percent because there has been no increase in sea level rise really anywhere uh, in the world. Uh, Speak to that, Terry. It is worse than a lie. What it is, it's an attempt to instill primordial fear in the uninformed public. Fear of drowning is hits us at our most basic levels. What he is actually doing, he is terrorizing us. Just like uh, Mao Zedong was terrorizing the Chinese and, and Khrushchev was terrorizing his people. If you're able to instill fear in the general population, it's very easy to control them. What uh, are the actual numbers that you're aware of with regard to some sea level numbers, one of the things that uh, affect local measurements of sea level. Let me start a little bit further back than that, uh, if I may, Jay. The earth went through a period called the Little Ice Age from about 1400 to about 1800, middle 1800s. Within that period, there was about a 75 year period from the 1640s to about 1720 that saw the coldest temperatures on earth since the end of the last ice age. When that bitterness broke in the early 1800s, the planet warmed up a little bit, but then bang, right away, we went back into another cold period of about 25, 30 years called the Dalton minimum. The Dalton minimum ended in the 1860s, 1870s. Oddly enough, the benchmark year for the uh, sea level rise is 1880. That is a very interesting starting point. But in 1880, the air in the atmosphere, the ocean waters were probably the coldest since the medieval warming. So we started out as a benchmark year that is extremely, extremely cold. The ocean waters are cold. Why do I emphasize the temperature of the ocean waters? When ocean waters warm, two things happen. Number one, the volume of the water expands. It may appear that the water level is rising when in fact it's just undergoing simple thermal expansion. Same amount of water, occupying a bigger space. The second thing that happens with the ocean waters, as the water temperature increases, it releases more carbon dioxide. You know, the devil CO2 is released by warming oceans. Here's a number. The ocean waters is estimated to contain 
45 to 50 times more carbon dioxide than the entire atmosphere of the Earth. Wow. Once we got out of the Dalton minimum, the planet warmed up gradually. The oceans warmed up gradually. The oceans were releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. That is the single major source of the increased carbon dioxide that we have had in the last 140, 150 years. The warming ocean waters has been providing extra carbon dioxide. Human contribution is barely one to 2% of total carbon dioxide. When we look at the numbers, rising from, you know, 180 up to 200 and 300 and what is it, 410 now, you're saying most of that rise is natural because of the warming ocean. Yeah, about 96% of that is nature. They they always attribute it to human industrialization. It's politically expedient for them to tell us that. Hmm. Uh, The reality is far from it the human contribution to the imbalance. In other words, as CO2 has increased in production, it doesn't mean that it's all been increased in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Because with increased production of CO2, it increases plant greening, more plants, bigger plants, faster growing plants, and they gobble up more carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. So for example, in a typical year, we may have so many gigatons, let's use more precise numbers. On a typical year, the earth would produce about 800 gigatons of CO2, but it also consumes about 870 Mm -hmm. gigatons. And the more bigger plants, the more the consumption increases. So on any one particular year, the residual imbalance is only about 1.6%. So it's not that it's increasing, increased and remained in the atmosphere. The plants are gobbling it up and as a side benefit through the photosynthesis process, that additional CO2 gets converted back to increased oxygen, which now further supports all animal life on Earth. Mm-hmm. It's a double winner for the planet and for humanity and all life on Earth. It's amazing that uh, the government has been able to Uh, continue to promote uh, this amazing fraud. And part of it is uh, that nobody really is talking about the expansion of water, the warming of water, the release of carbon dioxide. So whatever the argument is, everybody blames uh, the increase or some of the increase on uh, industrialization. And uh, I think it's fascinating for our listeners to recognize that it has uh, virtually uh, nothing to do with it. And of course, it's all good because of the greening of the, uh, of the planet. How does uh, the International Panel on Climate Change manage to ignore this factor and uh, continue to promote that uh, it's man's uh, emission of carbon dioxide that is altering the temperature of the planet? The United Nations IPCC has a political goal, <clears throat> not a scientific goal. And our friends at NASA and NOAA, I'm ashamed to say, are willing contributors to their pretzeled discussion. I don't want to say that they are outright deceiving us, 
uh, or lying, but what they do is they speak in pretzeled phrases. For example, at political meetings, at press conferences, the political leaders of the United Nations will talk about the sea level rise that's going to drown out the planet and destroy half of the population. But yet when you look inside the bowels of their uh, fifth assessment report, right there the scientists have stated that a major portion of the sea level rise is attributed to the warming of the ocean and the expansion of the water. So clearly, there is no such thing as a UN IPCC meeting. You have some very good scientists who write down the science, and then the politicians look at the report, and with the assistance of a few scientists that may have elastic values, they translate it into public speak. So you have science speak within the bowels, then you have the public speak in the pub, you know, for the press, the media, to get the startling headlines. And why are they doing all this? Because they see it as giving them access to trillions and trillions of dollars per year for mm -hmm. them to redistribute to poor nations, to the poor people of the world, etc. After the politicians at the UN take their fair share up front. Mm -hmm. So just for our audience, just to reiterate then, the rise in CO2 is caused by the warming. It's not that the warming is caused by the rise in CO2. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Let mm -hmm. me further emphasize on something that I've been focusing very much in the last six months, and that is volcanoes. NASA, NOAA generally mention volcanic activity they base their estimates on three or four active volcanoes on land and use that as the basis to say that, well, you know, human contribution far exceeds that of the volcanoes. Nothing could be further from the truth for several reasons. Number one, you don't need an active volcano to release CO2. All you need is a volcano that might have been active 100, 200, 500 years ago. I visited one such place in Guatemala. A volcano that tourists go to see, we were warned, do not stay here longer than 10 minutes because of the high emissions of carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide. An extinct volcano can still be pumping out a few dozen gigatons of CO2 per year. Second point, at least 85% of all the volcanic vent tectonic activities is occurring in the deepest part of the oceans, five miles down, six miles down below the surface. We have no idea what's going on. In the last five or six years, yeah, there's been a lot of research done. We've gotten a lot of uh, insight exactly how much volcanic activity is going on down there. And at this point, I'd like to mention a book. It's called What Really Cl uh, Causes Climate Change. The author, he really, really draws a clear scientific distinction of why CO2 does not cause warming of the atmosphere versus 
how volcanic activity may, one condition, cause global warming, and under another condition will cause global cooling. And I tried to uh, touch base on that quickly in the article that uh, you gentlemen wrote. I think we have a lot more to learn about volcanoes. Terry, there's something uh, that our audience would really be interested in. Uh, the government has financed over 100 mathematical models trying to calculate what the temperature of the planet will be 10 years and 100 years uh, from now. And to my understanding, they have never included anything to do with the Earth's volcanism, which seems ridiculous. What's your estimate of how many uh, sub-ocean volcanoes might exist? Well, I have seen estimates as high as four and a half million volcanoes, vents, tectonic oozings, etc. But along that line, something got buried in 2011. In 2011, NOAA had a meeting with the, the Scientific American and told them that the nuclear furnace of the Earth is providing at least as much energy to warming the planet Earth as we get from the sun. Why has the press not picked up on that? Why has that story been buried? Is there a greenhouse effect? Is there not a greenhouse effect? That question hasn't been answered because uh, one of the theories, more prevailing and emerging theories, is that the greenhouse effect is, in fact, the heat of the earth coming, uh, coming through uh, from its uh, nuclear furnace. So do you think that's the major driver of the warming since 1880? Uh, no. The major warming has come primarily as a result of increased solar activity, okay. solar magnetic activity. We saw this in the late 20s and 1930s when we had very hot dust bowl years. Mm -hmm. And that was strictly solar driven. And then on the backside of that solar magnetic cycle, we had the cooling periods of the 50s, 60s, and the early 70s when a lot of scientists were predicting that we were entering another ice age. Then the solar magnetic cycle shifts again and from the late 1970s until the year 2000, it was the, the primary source of heat for the temperature increase that we saw during that period. Then starting 2000, now we're on the backside of the solar magnetic cycle. And as Professor Valentina Zarkova says, this cooling period that was started last year could be with us for the next 30 to 50 years and bring us back to the temperatures of about 100 years ago, roughly half a degree C to one C cooler than it is now. Now, the interesting thing that you can tell from the satellite temperatures is that you clearly see the rise from 1979 till 99 and the decline from 2000 until April of this year. However, while the temperature was going up, the volcanic, the volcanic action had actually increased during that period. So during that period, you had the sun 
heating the earth from the top. And you also had some increased contribution of heating by the volcanoes from the bottom. In the last 20 years, however, the solar energy has been significantly declining, but the global temperatures really have not come down as, as much as we expect because of the increased volcanic activity. One measure of increased volcanic activity, we see it demonstrated best with the El Nino effect. Since the cooling period started, we have had three enormous El Ninos, one in 2011, one in 2015-16, and the, the last one, a humongous one, in 2020. So had it not been for these El Nino powerhouses in contributing to global warming, the temperatures, we would be back to where we were in the 1970s. Harry, uh, in a few sentences, explain what an El Nino is to our audience. That definition is being rewritten, Jay. The prevailing interpretation is that it's an atmospheric event of weather patterns and currents and this and temperature difference between the Eastern Pacific versus the cold South American. Uh, it's largely ocean currents moving heat from one place to another. That's what the claim is. However, there have been a number of papers published in the last three, four years that what they're saying is, is that in the Pacific area, there are enormous underwater volcanic activity of the basaltic type. These super monsters can pump out thousands of square miles of lava, heating the oceans and re releasing tremendous amounts of CO2 in the air. One specific example is the axial seamount. That is now considered what was primarily this hot spot in the Pacific North, Northwest off the coast of Oregon. NOAA, NASA was calling it the climate change blob because they couldn't explain it. So there is increasing evidence that the real powerhouse of these El Ninos are indeed these gigantic basaltic volcanoes oozing in three, four, five different spots in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, well, uh, Terry, let me, as we approach the end of our first uh, section, uh, I want to leave uh, the audience with uh, one uh, obvious takeaway. The idea that uh, scientists can calculate the future temperature of the Earth with a handful of numbers and a mathematical equation uh, is, is nothing more than a joke. I mean, what we've explained in the first portion is how complex the variables in, that determine heat uh, coming to the Earth, both above and below, none of which are considered accurately in equations. So it really becomes uh, nothing more than a joke to believe anything the government of the IPCC is, uh, is saying to us. And uh, in the second uh, section, we can explore uh, more details of the things that you've uh, put in your book uh, trying to make the whole subject of climate change in some ways a little simpler, but in other ways, understanding the complexity that makes all the predictions that we've heard in recent decades to be absolutely absurd. Yeah, that's right. Well, we'll take a break now. And so stay tuned. 
We'll be back for some pretty exciting stuff about sea level and ice. Well, my fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, You were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. So, Terry, what is the actual level of sea level rise over the last few decades? Can you tell us about how many inches per decade, for example, are we actually seeing? Let me say that since the the benchmark year of 1880 until this year, sea level rise has been somewhere around nine inches. And I say somewhere around nine inches because it could be 15 inches or it could be three inches. The margin of error in measuring sea level rise is greater than the value itself. Wow. So if we take our best guesstimate, the rise has been nine inches, divide that by the 140 years, and it comes out to about one to two millimeter rise per year. Hmm. Does that, that does, that's a senseless number. It's an arithmetic number. And and yet, it's manipulated to terrorize us. Yeah. You know, a basic question is, when we see sea ice melting, does that actually cause the ocean levels to rise? Not at all. Not at all. 
I was taught that in the fifth grade. You know, we put an ice cube in, um, in a glass, poured a, a lot of water in it, and then we took a grease mark and marked where the water is, and there's the ice cubes floating partially above the water. And guess what? When the ice cubes were melted, the water level never changed. It's because ice is less dense uh, than the water from which it was made. So 10% of the water that froze floats above the water. So when that ice melts, the 10% volume increase collapses, rejoins the 90% below the surface, and you're back to where you started. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happens up in the whole region. There's no landmass there. All it is is the Arctic Ocean. The water freezes for nine, 10 months of the year. And for one or two months per year, it melts. Mm-hmm. So the ice that came from the polar ocean goes back in the po- polar ocean. Same volume of water. No sea rise. Yeah. So I guess if, in fact, it did, if it rose, that would mean everybody in the bar as their drinks as the ice melted in their drinks, they would all start having their drinks overflowing. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the Antarctic is a much, much more interesting discussion because there essentially you have three types of ice. You have the great ice sheets. Oh, first of all, let's just get it on the table that 90% of all the ice on the planet is on or around Antarctica. 5% 5% up in Greenland and area and a little bit everywhere else around the world. So the 800 pound gorilla is the Antarctic. The central ice sheet of Antarctic is two, in some places, three miles thick, is about half of all the ice in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. None of that ice ever melts at any time during the day or night or the year. The temperature in inland Antarctica never goes above the freezing point, period. Now, there's another ring of coastal ice around the, the continent of Antarctica. The vast majority is in the west and the northwest portion of Antarctica. That ice actually is ice that's been flowing from the central ice sheet in that direction because that's how the, the topology slopes. Ice sheets actually flow. They flow at half an inch, two inches per year, but they flow very, very slowly. So they float towards the sea, towards the coast. And as uh, it reaches the water, 90% sinks below the water level, 10% stays above. And as more and more of these uh, ice flows in that direction, they go outward towards the sea. So if we take a look at the entire coastal ice, that ice is actually anchored as deep as 2,000, 2,500 feet deep in the ocean. And with water temperatures down there of three, four degrees C, there is no melting going on, okay? So that ice, 90% of that ice will never melt. 
mm-hmm. the 10% that is above water gets some melting, but not the 100 foot, 200 foot high cliff above the water. That's not melting because it's hardly ever, the temperature hardly ever goes above freezing. Where the melting is occurring there is within a few feet of the, the top of the water level. It's warm in the Pacific, especially in the last uh, 30, 40 years by a lot of the, this volcanic action I already spoke about. The gouging and the melting is occurring at the uh, water level. It carves out that ice, creates these ice overhangs. And then when the overhang is big enough, its own weight makes a crash. And that's when Hollywood and the videos are just absolutely fantastic. That portion of the ice overhang that falls into the ocean, that does add to sea level rise. Problem is, it's infinitesimal. It's Mm -hmm. such a minimal amount, it's almost laughable. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other ice, which is like the polar ice that is actually frozen ocean water. Well, we already discussed that. That never contributes to sea level rise. The other interesting fact is that as far back as six years ago, NASA started to leak out the fact that Antarctica was no longer losing ice, but actually gaining it. And in a report in 2015, they estimated that it was growing at the rate of 112 gigatons per year, net gain over net loss. And it's been accumulating ice, I think six out of the last seven years. Wow, gigatons being billion tons, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, a couple of years ago, same thing with the uh, ice sheets in Greenland. Their best known uh, ice sheet is is the Jacob Svensson. And that started growing again about two or three years ago. And then, of course, there's that funny situation that we had this uh, past year at uh, Glacier National Park in Montana. They put up a sign in front of the glacier saying, this glacier will be totally melted by 2020. Well, you know, when 2020 arrived and the glacier had started growing again, well, you know, the sign had to go. <laughs> that sign was taken down, eh? <laughs> the sign was taken down, not the glacier. So to some, uh, to some sea level and ice, as you said at the very beginning, it's all trying to uh, scare people. And of course, the, the scare is intended to blame carbon dioxide. And since carbon dioxide is emitted from fossil fuels, their, their real goal uh, is clearly to eliminate fossil fuels. And what a lot of people don't understand is they know we can't run the world on wind and solar and, and they're aware of that, and that's kind of their goal. They want to get to the point where we don't have enough fossil fuel to run the world because they don't allow us to drill for it or use it, uh, and therefore the government will have to ration all uh, energy to the population, which uh, essentially makes every human being uh, in this country certainly uh, dependent on the government for their energy, and, and happily that isn't going to happen. But one of the things you mentioned earlier that I want to go back to uh, is the cooling. Uh, one of the 
the things that I feel that this whole global warming scare uh, will end within a decade or so. They'll come up with other scares to replace it. But there appears to be evidence that uh, the Earth is going to be cooling, as you mentioned, uh, the changes in, uh, in the sun. Over the next 20 years, we may be cooling. And, uh, but how does that fit with the volcanic action uh, in the oceans? They're separate, as far as we can tell now. I have seen some recent theories that there may be a coupling of forces, maybe magnetic, maybe gravitational between the sun and, and the earth, but we really don't know what causes these periodic increases and decreases in volcanic activity. The GISP, the uh, Greenland Ice Project, which analyze ice core data confirms that in the last 140, 150 years, there has been uh, a, a certain measurable increase in the Earth's uh, volcanic activity, but specifically of the uh, low silicon type, the, the basaltic. Basaltic volcanoes will cause global warming whereas the explosive, uh, you know, the Mount St. Helena and the Mount Tinabuzu, uh, those explosive volcanoes uh, are explosive because their lava contains a great deal amount of silicates, uh, probably in the 55 to 65% silicate is the content of the lava. And for a complex, uh, set of reasons that causes a, a volcano to explode its mountaintop, whereas the low silicate volcanoes, like the kind we see in Hawaii and in uh, Greenland, they just keep oozing for weeks, months, years at time. They may cut, the last one in, uh, in Greenland covered an area about the size of London, you know, 80 somewhat square miles of four or five, 10 meter thick lava was just deposited, spewing all that heat, all that carbon dioxide up in the air. Mm -hmm. And the other bad thing about these basaltic volcanoes is that they also emit a lot of chlorine gas and bromide, and these will kill the ozone. And so the ozone protects us from uh, the ultraviolet heat of the sun with these basaltic volcanoes reducing uh, the ozone layer. That means more of the sun's UV actually penetrates to the earth and will contribute also to global warming. Oh, so now we'll have the environmentalists saying, stop volcanic eruptions. Exactly. <laughs> it's probably easier to do that than to stop the CO2. <laughs> yeah. I understand that near volcanoes, near the crater, you have fumaroles, which can go for many miles, cracks in the ground where CO2 comes out. And that, in fact, is not usually counted by the UN when they talk about emissions from volcanoes. Exactly. And, you know, you, may, you don't even know. If there happens to be some water in the ground there, yeah, you might see the steam, but otherwise you don't know that CO2 is coming out. Mm -hmm. It's invisible, it's colorless, it's odorless. You're absolutely right. <laughs>
Mm-hmm. It's been grossly underestimated, and I think it's been grossly estimated, underestimated purposely by NASA and NOAA. Would, would you think, Terry, that the storage of carbon dioxide underground is perhaps a dangerous thing to do, given that CO2 is heavier than air, so if it ever leaked out, it would suffocate people? Well, the concept is what is called carbon sequestering and sequestration, and basically the whole idea is to lock it up in a carbonaceous rock. But the reason I think that's destructive, never mind silly and expensive, is destructive because that's exactly what nature has been doing for the last 140 million years. Mm -hmm. It's been carbon questering the CO2 in the oceans. And who's the culprits? Our little friends, the clams and the shrimps and the turtles As they build their shells, they've been sequestering gazillion tons a year of CO2. So the CO2 levels in the ocean is dropping. That may turn out to be the ultimate thing that we may have to do. We may have to, 100 years, 200 years from now, we may have to fire up nuclear power plants to cook the CO2 out of the carbonaceous rocks, thanks to that was locked up by our little friends, the clams and shrimps and lobsters. We Mm -hmm. may have to go in the business of creating or manufacturing CO2 to replenish our atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And I guess most of the carbon is locked up in in the actual sea floor, right? Yeah, the carbonaceous rocks, the clams Mm -hmm. and, you know, the clamshells and, and eventually they become rocks. Patrick Moore has pointed out just what you just said, that eventually we will likely have to do something with our carbonaceous rocks to get the uh, carbon dioxide out of it if we start sinking down and don't have enough carbon dioxide. It it is uh, amazing to me uh, that uh, the enemy, so to speak, has come up with a fraud that is so absurd and, and upside down. Essentially, everything about carbon dioxide is wonderful. Uh, We want uh, more of it, not less of it. I was in a uh, science seminar recently with a number of people, and I said, why don't we start pointing out we want more carbon dioxide and be bolder about it? Uh, They actually, while they all agreed with me, they just somehow didn't think that was a, a good strategy that uh, we could be easily defeated. It wouldn't sound uh, sensible to the public. I, I don't agree with them, but I, didn't, uh, I did not win uh, the argument. But I want to go on and ask you uh, uh, your view of whether you think from the data that you have, uh, the sunspot theories, particularly that the earth is likely to be cooling in 20 to 30 years. What, what is your opinion, Terry? I am of the opinion that we will have a 30 to 50 year solar cooling period. The question is, will that cooling be mitigated if there's this increased volcan- effusive basaltic volcanic action? So originally, a couple of years ago, I was guessing that over the next 20, 30 years, we may see a one degree C drop in global temperatures. But now I'm saying it'll probably be only about half of that because there's no indication 
that uh, this volcanic, under-ocean basaltic volcanic activity is uh, abating. So yeah, it'll be cooling, only not as much as it would were it not for the active volcanoes. So you don't think we're headed back to the depths of the Little Ice Age? No. Oh, no. that's good. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little more uh, about your book, uh, Terry, and why, uh, why you wrote the book and how is it very different from everything else on climate change. I think we've established in uh, this uh, radio show the incredible complexity of the Earth's climate and everybody listening should uh, almost begin to laugh at what they read from the government. It is so absolutely absurd. The whole Earth's temperature is so much more complex than uh, the government talks about that they can have a little mathematical equation and make predictions. We all know that uh, our seven-day weather forecast is just barely 50% accurate. We're pretty good a day out, two days out. But when we get to a week, we cannot predict the weather. And uh, climate is just a essentially a 30-year composite uh, of weather. And everybody should start laughing about it and, and hopefully realizing uh, the government is steering us wrong because of it. Uh, you sat down some years ago uh, to write a book quite uh, different uh, from any that have been written on climate change, and there have been many. Uh, tell us about your thought process in deciding to do it and how you went about it. You're absolutely right. Uh, you had one type of uh, climate change book meant to scare and terrorize people. You had another group written by scientists, for scientists who went through the science and excruciating detail and differential equations and stuff like that. I, I even I couldn't follow those. And you had books uh, that simplified it so much so that it came with its own set of uh, crayons for children. There was really no science book that tried to identify what were the major drivers of climate change? And how does the average person in the street relate to that particular cause of climate change in his own day-to-day -day experience, in his own day-to-day -day language? So that's what I set out to do, is, is to take a significant number of the major drivers of climate change and using simple everyday language, try to explain it at a level that your average high school student uh, should be able to comprehend. And then I put in some fun stuff just to keep uh, the readers awake. And you know, it's interesting, Carrie, in the first uh, sentence, you talk about how the book is an eye-opener for the general public, particularly the victims of climate change social wars. Now, that, I find that really interesting because we do seem to be engaged in a lot of social wars right now against extremism, especially on the left, driven by what I understand is applied postmodernism. You know, do you think the left has simply lost their mind? I mean, what's going on? Well, you know, ordinarily, I wouldn't mind if the, le if the left lost their minds. And <laughs> it really had no grave 
social consequences, especially to the poorest people in the world and in the United States. It's the poor people that bear the, the consequences of this false science. Look, the rich can afford to put solar panels on their roofs and get a rebate on the solar panels. And then they get the lower discount rates on the, on the electric, electricity they consume. For them, it's a bargain. They get their money back in, on their investments in two, three years. And after that, it, they keep getting the interest of the lower uh, rates. But, but who's paying for that? It's, it's the poor working people that can't afford to put the solar panels on the roof who are subsidizing the rich for them to get cheap solar energy. That's what I mean by the, the social injustice of this mm-hmm. false religion of climate change, capacity to produce their needs, national needs, by wind and solar alone. In actuality, they're lucky if they get 12, 13 percent. So mm-hmm. they have 112 percent, 120 percent of capacity already installed, producing 12 percent of their energy. And Germany, the average German is paying three times the electricity that, that we do in the United States. But Germany is not having the blackouts like California because next door they have France's huge nuclear industry that's more than happy to fill in all the electricity that Germany needs. Where's California going to go? To Mexico? To their nuclear energy? I don't think so. Yeah, I should just read the subtitle of your book. The, the main title is A Hitchhiker's Journey Through Climate Change. But the subtitle is, is really cute. All you need to know about climate change, but we're afraid to learn and laugh at. And I hope a time is coming when people start to laugh at these things because, you know, we hear people saying there's a climate emergency, and yet it's only slightly more than one degree Celsius rise since 1880. I mean, I don't think that most people would even know that climate was changing unless they had experts telling them. Exactly. But unfortunately, it's in the experts' best interest to perpetuate the lie. There is no grand conspiracy. But what you have is a very large segment of the scientific community who have families to raise. They have careers to build. If you just got your PhD and now your job, number one job is to to get tenure at some college. You're not going to get tenure unless you told the party line. And unfortunately, UNIPCC and the Democrat Party and Mr. Biden are defining what the party line requirements are. I don't hold any anger for these people because they have to look out for their family first. Mm -hmm. By this contrast, who are the climate change scientists uh, who are the skeptics, who are not afraid to talk about it, even people such as me? We are, our careers are essentially over. You know, we're financially secure. We really don't care what the press says or doesn't say about us. But those younger scientists, they got a family to take care of. So what do you think the average person, the average listener can do to help counter this monstrosity, this climate change hoax? I really think we have to bring more humor in our discussion. 
I've watched a number of YouTube presentations and we do a very good job of bringing out the facts. I think what we need to do is bring out the facts in a more entertaining fashion. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we have to find a way to use humor as much as science. Because, you know, like the old joke, before you can teach a mule to do anything, you first need a two by four to get its attention. So maybe we can use uh, humor as the two by four. Yeah, you know, Dr. Ball and I wrote a piece in which we called it, so what? We said, global warming's occurring. It's warmed a degree Celsius since 1880. So what? I love it. Yeah, and we went through all the different things. At the end of each paragraph, we said, so what? <laughs> Boy, that really annoyed the enviros. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have to start uh, with the humor and uh, with the scorn and ridicule in a nice well, way. Well, uh, I can't recommend your book, uh, which I have played a small role in too highly, and you have cartoons all the way through it, uh, and there's a great deal of humor. And in the places in the book where it gets a little heavy, there's always a warning, you know, uh, you're, you're ready to go into the weeds and it isn't necessary. Skip on to the next chapter if you don't want to know in too much detail. And I think that was a really smart thing to do. But it's, it's really a fabulous, very inexpensive paperback, uh, a hitchhiker's journey through climate change. Well, we have to wrap up now. That was really great. Learning that CO2's rise is not driven by us. Learning that CO2 is not driving temperature. Learning that, in fact, on virtually every level, the climate scare is not based on sound science, especially concerning the ice and sea level rise. So thanks for being with us today, Terry. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. This is Tom Harris and Jay Lear with our guest, Darigi Chikoni, signing out from the other side of the story. Thank you.